A reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be associated with them. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. As you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. For it is as if a man, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid her talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. 
So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the 10 talents. For to all those who have, more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we come to you now and ask that you would be with us, that you would give us your light, that we may look upon your scriptures and look upon our lives uh, and see the truth, and that by seeing that truth, you would set us free. So God, would you meet with us and stir us uh, to an alertness and help us to wake up today to your presence, to your love, and to the reality of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So the season of Lent is upon us. And if you're coming from uh, a tradition or a background where observing the season of Lent is new or foreign to you, I would commend to you a resource that we have on our back table and on our website under the resources tab. It's a little article by Craig Higgins called On Keeping a Holy Lent. And basically what that article is about is just simply recognizing Lent not as something that is mandatory that we have to do, but also something that is wise. It's a, it's a tradition that we receive from those who've gone before us, uh, that it's a season that we enter into where we take upon a different posture, or at least we emphasize some different things during this season of Lent. We emphasize slowing down. We emphasize examining ourselves. We emphasize looking upon the reality of our own sinfulness that we may come to a deeper knowledge of the ways that we're broken, the ways that we fail to live in the fullness of the life God has called us to so that we may name those things, repent of those things, turn from those things, and begin to experience more uh, the life of faith and hope and love to which God calls us. And it's important as we enter into the season of Lent that we remember that we do this not morbidly as some kind of self-flagellating introspection or something like that. We don't do this to pile guilt upon ourselves. Rather, we do this in light of the great, good, beautiful news that Christ is risen. That Christ has come to us, he has lived among us, he has died with us, he has risen from the grave, he has ascended to his throne and poured out his spirit and we live today in light of the great freedom from sin that Christ has won on our behalf. And so as we begin to look at the reality of the sinfulness of our lives, we do so not morbidly but very hopefully knowing that Christ has won the battle and that he invites us into a life of actually joining him in that victory over sin and death. And so one of the things we do during Lent, in light of that freedom, is we begin to get to know ourselves as sinners a little bit more particularly, so that we begin to know the mercy and grace of God in Christ toward us more particularly, and embark with him on this journey of life to which he calls us. And to help us do that this Lenten season, we're beginning a new sermon series on the seven deadly sins. What are those? Well, the seven deadly sins is most basically a list. 
It's a list of seven sins. It's a well-established tradition that goes way back um, to the 6th century or even before to the Desert Fathers in the 4th and 5th centuries. Uh, It was developed by Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century and has this robust tradition in the history of the Christian church as being a useful tool that helps us look upon our own lives and diagnose sinful tendencies in our own lives. It's, it, it enables us to name some of the toxic things that we participate in and do that we may be unaware of. And what it helps us do is really avoid two problematic tendencies, I think, that we see in the church and in our culture today. And one is a tendency to talk generally about sin in a way that emphasizes this comprehensive scope of whether it's the guilt or the brokenness or whatever of sin in general, without bringing that down to some ground level, real, practical, concrete, specific way of talking about the sins, the real sins in our lives. But of course, the flip side, the other tendency that this helps us with is a tendency to talk about specific sins or wrongdoings or evils either in our own lives or in the lives of others, without recognizing the depth of how those things are actually manifestations of something deeper that's going on inside of us. And so this seven deadly sins becomes a useful tool for us by which we name our sins, by which we begin to recognize patterns of sin in our lives. And as a result of naming them, we begin to experience a little bit of the power of God's deliverance in our lives from them. And so the list, there's some variation among the lists in history, but you know, some, they're, they're all somewhat like this. A list of seven where you have pride and vanity or pride, vanity together, that, that differs. Envy, wrath or anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust the seven deadly sins. And there's some arbitrariness to it, and certainly the shape of the list uh, is largely shaped by uh, Gregory the Great's sixth century love for the number seven, Uh, the fact that that's a number of of completion, and so where there was a list of eight, he kind of turned it into a list of seven and and made it that. So yeah, it's arbitrary. And so one question that comes up as we take on uh, talking about the seven deadly sins is like, okay, how relevant is this list still today? If it is kind of arbitrary, this isn't some divine revelation of a list of sins, is it still relevant? Or maybe are there worse sins that we should be worried about today? Like, um, why is sloth on the list when, like, genocide isn't, for example? Or tyrannical use of power, aren't those worse? And so if you go through and read up on the seven deadly sins, you'll see that some have suggested uh, updated lists that bring this concept uh, into our present day and, and update the list with sins that they feel are more urgent or relevant for us. But it's important to note that the point of the seven deadly sins is not to name the seven worst things that human beings do, but rather it's to name seven capital sins, and capital in the sense of the source like the head of a river. The seven deadly sins are root sins from which spring forth all sorts of destructive and toxic ways that we live. They're like seven cancers of the soul, if you will, that bring forth in our lives inner rot and death. 
in each of us. Will Willimon, in his book on the seven deadly sins, he says that all of these updated lists that he's seen that try to make the seven deadly sins more contemporary are problematic in two ways. One is that they don't appreciate the depth of the sins on, this, on the original list to see how all these things give rise to all of these other things they're actually concerned with. And secondly, these updated lists, they actually don't deal with the toxic roots beneath some of these other sins that they name and therefore don't provide a sufficiently deep analysis of what's wrong. Genocide, for example, it's a symptom, an extreme one at that, but it's a symptom of something deeper. And for the list of seven to be useful, we need something that will help us treat not just the symptom, but the root. But here's the thing about the seven deadly sins that's so, that makes them so powerful. They're small. They're small and they're sneaky. If you're like me and your movie-going experience hit its peak in the mid to late 90s, perhaps when you think of The Seven Deadly Sins, you think of that movie Seven starring Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt, uh, which portrayed each of these sins in like the most horrifically gruesome ways imaginable. But the point of The Seven Deadly Sins is that the way they actually manifest in our lives is exactly the opposite. They're subtle. They're sneaky. They hide. They don't look like horrific tragedies in our lives, not usually. Usually they manifest in more subtle ways, like when we roll our eyes at someone or when we won't say no to just one more of whatever it is, when we won't say yes to something difficult that we don't want to do, or when we refuse to be happy for someone else because we wish we were in their shoes or when we become defensive and can't see the truth about ourselves because it makes us too uncomfortable. The truth is that all seven of these deadly sins are operative in every one of our lives. If we're honest, if we're having keen insight into our own lives and seeing the truth, every single one of us is affected by every single one of the seven more deeply than we understand. But for each of us, there's probably one or maybe a few that stand out as particularly powerful in your life. And it's actually helpful to know that. It's helpful to know what your go-to characteristic sins are. Because the more you know that, the more you're able to actually wisely enter into a life of repentance from your own characteristic sin patterns. And it may be that as we go through this series that you discover that maybe one or more of the seven will surprise you as being more significant in your life than you realized. And that's actually the point. We want to come to know ourselves as sinners more particularly so that we may come to know the grace of God in Christ more personally and may give ourselves over more fully to the Holy Spirit's transformative work in our lives and in the world. We want to understand better how we've gotten lost so that we may respond to Jesus' invitation to come home, to this life and joy with God. And today we begin our series by looking at this deadly sin of sloth, which I will admit is one that has surprised me in recent weeks as I have studied it, become more acquainted 
acquainted with it as I've begun to look more at my life to try to see it more and more, sloth is one that has kind of rocked me a little bit, I will say, um, this week. What is it? What do you think of? When you think of sloth, what do you think of? I first think of the animal, right, the sloth, uh, that pathetically slow-moving creature, and human lifestyles that move at a similar pace. Fair, right? I think of things like Netflix binges and snooze buttons and sweatpants and pizza delivery. Uh, for those of you who watch children's movies, maybe you think of um, the animated feature Zootopia. You know, that city that's populated by animals where like all the police officers are rabbits, all the employees at the Department of Motor Vehicles are sloths, <laughs> right? Sloth. But I think there's a lot more to sloth than what readily comes to our own minds because the animal may not actually be the best picture for us of what sloth looks like in our lives. Sloth is sneaky because unlike many sins, sloth is a sin of omission rather than commission, right? Sloth is about what we leave undone. And so it's sneaky in that way. Sloth is one of those sins for where the statement, I never did that, is not a statement of defense, but of confession, right? Murder, I never did that. Going to the gym, I never did that. Different, right? It works differently. Um, we, when we start looking at sloth in our lives, what we begin to see is less a rap sheet of offenses and more of a picture of what could be but isn't because of the way we've chosen to live our lives. The, the original or the sort of um, traditional Latin name for the sin, uh, Acadia, Acadia, I haven't taken Latin since seventh grade, um, it's not so much about not moving, it's literally not caring. The sin is not about being slow or lazy as much as it is being indifferent, apathetic. If you wanted to put a tagline on the sin, like whatever, right? It's the sin of this failure to care, the lack of love that leads to a lack of effort or work. Sloth, it's the sin of our failure to steward well the agency that we have in the world and in our relationships with others. And it's the root of all the things we've left undone because we just haven't cared enough to do them. Or another way to put it is sloth is our resistance to what love requires of us. If you look at the passage from Ephesians 5 uh, that we just read earlier, if you look at this text, uh, what we see is a beautiful invitation to a way of life in the Spirit that Paul is commending to the Ephesian church, right? And the section that we read is actually part of a larger section about life in the Spirit, about what that looks like. And at the beginning of chapter 5, before the section that we just read, what Paul says, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
And then here in this section, as Paul unpacks more and more of what that looks like, he says, live as children of light. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord, and then do that. Sleeper, wake up, rise from the dead, be wise, make most of the time. Don't be filled with wine or drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And what he's doing in that last verse that I just mentioned about contrasting being under the influence of wine and being under the influence of the Spirit is simply teasing out a contrast that highlights a reality about our lives. We are always living under the influence of something, right? What is it that will compel your life? Paul is saying don't be filled with things that will compel you away from the life to which God is calling you. Don't be drunk with wine. Be drunk with the Spirit. Be intoxicated with the Spirit who compels our lives in the way of Christ and in the way of love. For Paul, participating in the life of the Spirit is the basic ingredient of the Christian life. This is why Jesus came. He came to live and die and rise again in order to make the sacrifice for sins that was needed in order to prepare the way for the Spirit of the Lord to come upon all God's people and the earth. And so the sending of the Spirit is this climactic moment that says what God had promised from long ago is now here. And Paul says the life that Christ calls us to is life in the Spirit. Because we have the Spirit, we've been vested with an agency in God's world that you and I barely understand or appreciate. We are Christ's body on earth. We're the chosen instrument of our Savior of the world who has made us and given us everything that we have and then calls us to go all in with him on his mission of love. And that's something that affects us corporately, and individually, that's our calling, that's our vocation that flows out of our identity. And our sin of sloth is really every way that we fail to steward that agency well. And it's, it's every way that we say no to this invitation to take up our cross and follow Jesus in the way of sacrificial love and opt instead for an easier out. That's what sloth is. So what does that look like in our lives? Well, of course, sloth can manifest as laziness. Of course it can. But it can just as easily look like excessive busyness, which is one of the reasons many of us may not recognize sloth as a characteristic sin of our lives. In fact, many who write on sloth say that workaholism and frantic busyness are classic symptoms of sloth. It's a preference for endless distraction or being pulled away from what love requires of us, and it's instead filling our lives with all sorts of other requirements. I see this very much in myself. I use work, I use projects that interest me as distractions that allow me to escape from the unexciting but important things that I need to do. That's just true about my life. I can see that as a pattern in my life, as a pattern of sloth, in my life. Anything that feels like an adventure, I love. Anything that feels like maintenance, I don't love. And so what I do is I find ways to replace things that feel like maintenance with things that feel like adventure. 
That could be projects. That could be a new plan for the future. It could be dreaming about a vacation. It could be learning some new thing. I literally learned how to do the Rubik's Cube last week as a way to veg out. I don't know what I neglected as I spent my time doing that. I, I don't know. But the question arises, how often do I resist the demands of love, wittingly or unwittingly, by keeping busy with other things? How much beauty and joy and love could I have experienced myself? Could I have shared with other people? Could I have contributed to the world if I hadn't been so preoccupied by busying myself with things? You fill in the blank for yourself. If I hadn't been, what? Scrolling on my phone, working all the time, playing video games, driving my overscheduled kids from one activity to another, or watching sports all Saturday, or obsessing over what's going on in the stock market or in the world of politics. What's your thing? What do you busy yourself with? What do you preoccupy yourself with that pulls you away from the present and makes you unable to respond well to the demands of love. Evelyn Waugh describes sloth as a primary late modern sin. And I think that's become all the more apparent as handheld technology and social media provide more and more opportunities than ever before to distract ourselves. Sloth can look like laziness, it can look like busyness, but it can also look like our casual, passive assimilation into a way of life that's shaped by the values and norms of our, of our culture than by the invitation of Jesus to follow him into a radically different way of being human. Back in 1500, when the Dutch Renaissance painter Hieronymus Bosch depicted sloth, he painted not some lazy bones do nothing vegging out, but he actually painted a rather typical scene of Dutch bourgeois life. And just middle-class normal life. is a guy sitting on the couch by the fireplace enjoying some leisure time with his pet curled up by his feet instead of responding to an invitation to pray. And I think that's really keenly insightful for us because if we could ask the question, what does sloth look like in our day? If we're honest, it probably looks a lot more like me in my living room and you in your living room than we want to admit. It looks a lot like my Saturdays looked last football season. I will just say that. And what makes that form of sloth so toxic to our souls is that we can just sort of passively drift, drift away into the distance and detachment from God without really noticing what's happening. Do you know what I'm talking about? You just kind of coast, right? And the fire just grows cold. And what makes it so dangerous is that that just looks and feels so normal. It looks nothing like a deadly sin. Will Willimon says that much of what we call doubt today is probably more properly understood as sloth, which struck me when I read that, and it's had me thinking all week about that, actually. But he talks about how much of what we call doubt today is not this like hard-hitting, intellectual, and spiritually rigorous thing as we wrestle with God, but it's, it's really just kind of an apathetic not caring. More that than an inability to believe. 
And of course, not all doubt is that, of course. Some is very rigorous, intellectually, spiritually, wrestling with God, and that form of doubt, I think, uh, can be a profound expression of faith and can be a life-giving discipline. But so much of what's fashionable these days of what we call doubt, it just isn't that at all, right? It's, it's just kind of a cynical, escapist way to opt out of a hard conversation and instead to opt into this, you know, commiserating one of disillusioned or disaffected people who are legitimately frustrated, but then take that frustration to a place that's not fruitful. And I listen to a good bit of the blog or the um, podcasts out there, you know, and I, I do. I, I enjoy some of those post-evangelical, post-Christian podcasts and find some of those to be helpful, but I'm often struck also about how so much of what goes on there uh, isn't actually diligent, honest, wrestling with hard questions. But it really is just kind of the opposite of that. It's commiserating and slothful. Some have offered an image of marriage or friendship as a metaphor that helps us understand sloth, where a significant relationship in your life is like a lifelong love that also requires daily work, right? It's something big that's lifelong, but it's also something mundane, routine, that we have to enter into, into daily or else it grows cold. And Rebecca DeYoung says that the slothful person is the one who resists the effort of doing day after day whatever it takes to keep the bonds of love strong and living and healthy, whether he or she feels particularly inspired about doing it or not. Do you see that in your own life? Do you see it in your life with God? Do you see it in your life with other people? I do see it in my own life. And I see it this week more clearly than I've seen it before, precisely because I've been studying this sin of sloth. So how does God deliver us from our sloth? Three theological words for you. Revelation, redemption, regeneration. Revelation, God shows us what he's like. God reveals to us in Jesus the anti-sloth character of God. A God who cares about us, who cares about his creation. A God who delights in us and delights in his creation and works diligently on our behalf. Who's also given us agency in the world and a responsibility to be stewards of what he's entrusted to us. And so God in Christ, he reshapes our view of God so that like the slave in the parable, we're not thinking of him as some harsh master who's coming to collect and reap what he did not sow. But we recognize God as the one who has loved us, the one who's called us to love him back and to love others in his name. And so in Christ, we get a, we get a new view. We get a clearer view of the character of this God of love and a clearer view of our calling to be Jesus' hands and feet in the world. It's not about how gifted you are, whether you get the ten talents or the two talents or the one. It's about what you do with what God has given you. Do you live your life and do you invest your life in the joy of his kingdom and sharing that with others? Or do you do something else with it out of fear, out of despair, or for some other reason. The sin of sloth is the sin of resisting that call. So revelation, we see the character of God. But redemption, in Christ, God has done all the work 
to restore us to that right relationship with himself. That relationship we are way too lazy to nurture adequately. He does all the heavy lifting. He does all the work. And he brings us home. He has diligently pursued us and purchased us out of our slavery to sloth and the death that it brings. And instead, he has paid the own precious price of his body and blood to bring us into an entirely new kind of reality, an entirely new relationship with him. He has crossed the gap of our uncaring. And we love because he's first loved us. That's redemption. But regeneration, he's made us alive. God has given us his spirit and he says, as Paul says, awake, O sleeper. I've brought you to life. I've raised you from the dead and this way of uncaring is not the way of life. So rise, walk with me in the way of the cross. These are the ways that God delivers us from our sloth, and if we just want to think in closing about a few strategies for how we might get practical with that and participate in that, I'll offer these. As I was reading about sloth, a few, a few medicines to treat it came up time and again. Um, joy, beauty, and fruitful work. Encounters with joy make us care. Experiencing the beauty of things makes us care. And participating in fruitful work reminds us that our work can be fruitful and it makes us care. And so one of the ways that we can begin to repent of sloth is that we put ourselves in places where we can share joy and experience beauty and serve with other people, move toward people. Another thing we can do is what the Apostle Paul gives us in the end of this reading from Ephesians 5 that we just read. Take up practices of worship, right? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves. Singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts. What would it look like this week to take up practices of daily, weekly singing in our hearts, practicing perceiving the beauty of the world God's placed us in, practicing receiving the joy of his kingdom, and practicing serving in ways that makes us and others experience it more deeply. I think another thing we can do is we can recognize and resist the two great temptations of sloth, escapism and despair. Despair you could also couple with cynicism. Recognize that those are the two great temptations that sloth capitalizes on in our lives to draw us away from Christ and into a way of inner rot and death. So how do you escape? And where are you despairing? And what would it look like to bring those things to the feet of Jesus and say, here, you take these and I'll take you. Pay attention to your intentions. What's compelling you? Are you drawn toward what is good and beautiful or are you drawn toward what is easy? Sloth takes the easy road. And then another strategy, I think, is we can look on what, what are the vows that we've taken that we can renew, whether it's baptismal vows. As we've come to be part of Christ's family, we've, re, we've renounced evil and we've confessed the faith of Christ and we've, we've vowed to take up the worship and service of the church as our own and to leverage our own selves in that mission. Can we come and, and renew those vows? 
Or if you've taken marriage vows, can you renew those vows and recognize that God has called you to faithful, fruitful action, a commitment that compels you into love and not away away from it. And I think for each and every one of us this week, as we walk out the doors, as we, as we live this week, asking God to help us see the sloth in our lives, that we may experience freedom from it, I would just say this is really the takeaway. This week, would you ask God for light to be able to look upon your own life and see where in your life are you resisting what love requires of you? Where in your life are you resisting what love requires of you? And as you begin to see those, would you ask God also for the grace to lay aside the defensiveness by which you would explain away why you're totally justified in resisting? And would you ask God for the courage to name those things as the deadly sin of sloth in your life? Name it. And then repent of those things because they're deadly to your soul and to mine and they're toxic to your relationships and to mine. And would you let the liberating, merciful love of God touch you right there and change you? That's the offer of the gospel of Jesus to slothful people. And that's what you and I desperately need this week. By God's grace, awake, O sleeper, and walk with Christ. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your love and your faithfulness toward us in Jesus. We thank you that you don't leave us alone We thank you that you don't respond to our uncaring by the measure of care that we aim toward you, but you cross the gap of our apathy, you cross the gap of our cold-heartedness, you cross the gap of our selfishness and our sloth, and you embrace us right where we are. So we thank you for your love, we thank you for your mercy, and we pray for your grace pray for wisdom, that we would see these things in our lives and turn from them for our own sake and for the sake of the world. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.